to use this evening just some questions, anything you'd like to bring forward for some reflection. Really like to encourage that it's kept quite grounded in, in the practice that we're doing. We will reserve philosophical debates for 10 years from now. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the, the jhana states have been mentioned several times from you. Um, can you speak to those in a practical sense? How does how does one come about those states? How accessible might they be to lay people? Oh well, I mean, this is my personal. It's not my personal opinion, it's my personal experience. <laughs> um, they are very accessible to lay people. Now, jhanas, you've heard us using this word, and for those of you who are not familiar with this, this describes a spectrum of very absorbed, uh, we might call them concentrative experiences or states. There's a road map for these. Um, that is actually quite universal for many people, actually, surprisingly, that goes through rapture, through happiness, through peace, through equanimity, to another grouping which are far, far more boundless. Now, <clears throat> a couple of things I would say about it is some people seem temperamentally to have quite easy access to some of these states, even in a, sh in a short retreat like this, which I know some of you would describe as a long retreat, but <laughs> even in a short retreat like this, <laughs> this is a in perspective, in this very short retreat, um, even in this kind of context, uh, some people will find themselves encountering some of these. Usually the first jhana, maybe second, which, you know, surprises people. Surprises people. Some people practice exactly with the same effort, the same sincerity, the same, you know, diligence, whatever, don't seem to go in, click over into these absorption states. Now, it's also important to say, I don't think there is an ultimate definition of what a jhana is. A jhana describes a state of being absorbed into an object. Now, when we practice here with the breathing, with mindfulness of breathing and learning to collect and to gather our attention, this is the basis of that kind of samadhi. This is the basis of that kind of development. Now, the difference between using that path as a, you know, a kind of prolonged, sustained path of development and insight practice lies primarily in intention. Because if you're doing just concentration practice or absorption practice, you know, your intention is to continually just come back to the primary object. You're not really interested in anywhere that the mind goes. Whereas, of course, in insight practice, the intention is different because we're working with the satipatthanas of body, vedana, mind. So when the attention is drawn away, it's drawn away into these 
various life events which are held within the Satipatthanas as objects of contemplation. So there's more investigation, there's more curiosity. It's not that just let it go, come back. Now the Buddha was very clear that jhanas are not a path of liberation. It was very clear in this. Um, but at the same time, gave considerable support in the discourses. In fact, if you go to any of the early discourses, it's unmistakable how much the jhanas are spoken of because there is something deeply to be said about developing this mind that is so refined, so able to be collected, so able to be gathered, because that is a mind, as we've said here a number of times, that has the easiest access to understanding. So, you know, in, you know, one has to think of one's meditative life in a broader sense. I mean, in a retreat like this, we have a bit of a bus tour through the Satipatthanas, you know, cause it's, it, 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 because this is a very short retreat. <laughs> So we have, you know, a bit of a bus tour through, you know, we visit Bodhi and then we visit Vedana and we, we have a stop off at Mind States, you know, and then the retreat's over almost, you know. So bearing in mind that in a, if in a more extended, broader view of practice, might, one might give like a very prolonged period of time to contemplating any of these areas of Satipatthana, but one could also give a very prolonged period of time to developing collectedness, because this, this deeper level of absorption, because this is a path to developing a mind which is truly a friend, able to think creatively, lucidly, able to think the thoughts one wishes to think and not think the thoughts one doesn't wish to think, able to have a true inner refuge in calmness. So, you know, I mean, I've spoken about this, uh, you know, I've heard John speak about this, say, in my own, I mean, I spent a very long time doing concentration practices, found them very useful. And it's, it, I think of it simply as, as a, a necessary life skill. So in my own practice, I would give like three months a year minimum just to doing concentration practice. Because I think there's a certain mythology that if you do concentration practice, you're somehow sacrificing insight. I think this is not at all true. It may be on the cushion that there's not much going on in the mind in terms of thoughts, so there's not much insight going on. But of course, the insights tend to arise the moment we open our eyes and contact arises and the world arises. The mind is so inclined towards seeing very clearly and very deeply. I'm sure my reverend colleagues here, my reverend colleagues, have got something to say on this. <laughs>
much time you can dedicate to practicing stillness, um, it is a worthy endeavor, simply because you learn the skill in stilling your mind. Yeah. Maybe that goes for some people more easily. Uh, for some people this may uh, lead to blissful states earlier on than for others. But for everybody, learning to modulate the frequency of discursive activity, the stillness, the, the holding capacity, and getting uh, an experience of the depth dimension of mind and the quality of unification that is the hallmark of uh, jhanic experience is a very, very powerful tool. A tool, as Christina says, that is not reduced to simply feeling good during a few blissed out uh, moments on your cushion. But you see, the relationship between deeper states of stillness and the hindrances is dramatic. Yeah? The, the subsiding of hindrances is what makes these deeper states of stillness possible. And even long before they set in, you have actually um, a flattening of those hindrances. And what happens is the mind becomes more clear, uh, y you know, you have greater perspicacity, uh, this is more open what's happening, you know, the dynamics, the impulses, the processes, the conditionality, all this becomes more apparent. It is as if you have a view of the lay of the land. Even before an absorption sets in, the mind has less obstacles in understanding. So the capacity of the mind to understand its own functions is greatly increased through stillness. Yeah, yeah. John? Yeah, I too subscribe to the idea that the the jhana states are very um, much more mundane than the esoteric nature they're often given. Um, I think what has happened over the centuries, I just want to kind of just revert to a bit of history for a second, is that they've been given a position which I don't think they had in the time of the Buddha. There were much more states which people accessed easier. And I don't think it was because they had a greater capacity to do this. I just think they've put the bar so high now in terms of the way that jhanas are viewed, particularly within <clears throat> a lot of the monastic traditions, that they seem really esoteric, really difficult. You've got to be kind of superman or superwoman in, to be able to do this. And I don't think that's the way the Buddha intended it. Um, it's very much this gathering of the mind, which both Akinjana and Christina have mentioned here, this gathering of the mind and the ability to um, gather it even more and more and more intensely until there's a point of unification of the mind. And this is a very important thing because one of the things I think we, we know and sometimes underestimate, I think, in terms of, of insight practice is just how much degree of that gathering or concentration is necessary in order to engage in really looking at what's going on in the mind. With a scattered, fragmented mind, it's extremely difficult to, to watch within that scattered and fragmented mind. You're trying to watch you know, something which is scattered and fragmented with something that's scattered and fragmented. You know, it's, it's, it's a pretty self-defeating uh, task. Whereas this, this, you know, there's a lot of argument within traditions, there's a lot of argument within um, you know, contemporary meditation teaching as to how much of that you know, 
gathering you need, whether it's actually jhanic or it's pre-jhanic, but there's certainly the need for that. Because once you have that, you start to get a honed instrument which is capable of actually beginning to look quite closely at what is actually going on in terms of mental states. And bear in mind, a lot of our mental states are arising and passing away quite quickly. So it's very, very difficult to try and catch them. With the dropping away of the hindrances, with the jhanic, you know, with the onset of absorption in terms of jhana, um, then you're getting this ability to see much, much more clearly what is actually, what is actually going on. Um, particularly if it's put in the service, I think, that experience of the gathering of mind and the unification of mind in the service of insight. Personally, I only see jhana in terms of um, something being in the service of insight, not a path in itself. There's a degree of ambiguity in the early texts about the position of jhana, but one thing Christina made absolutely clear is the Buddha says this is not in itself a path to liberation. You know, it's something that can be in the service of liberation, but in itself is not a path to liberation. But I'll have a, a kind of first stab at the... Repeat the question and sort of yeah. Okay, I'll try, I'll try and praise it. The question is really, what is insight? And that's the basis of the question. Um, because you... Sort of all sorts of things are revealed on the cushion about perhaps how you live your life, what kind of fixations there might be in the mind, what sort of things reveal how my mind starts to work. Is, is that fairly... Um, but they seem, and the question was saying that these often seem fairly superficial, as if there's something like a little bit more profound about insight. They seem, they seem like they have great depth, mm. and yet I can see very clearly that thinking with them is not going to bring me any place yeah. very deep. Okay. And yet they have the possibility, if one gets deep enough with them, of perhaps seeing the whole world change. Yeah. 
Okay, so the, the, the kind of things that are revealed on the cushion seem, appear to have a depth, but it's not a kind of depth that's in relation to, to thinking them through as such. Um, but basically the question is about how, if there is depth to them, how it's going to reveal itself and how really you live with that? Is that part of how to work with it? Okay. And yet, it seems important. It seems like it needs attention. So, what is the appropriate response when these things present themselves? Okay. Sorry, I wasn't more clear. No, no, no. It's 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 uh, it's quite a long question. I want to try to make sure I answer every part of it. Okay. Well, the first the first thing is that I think, for example, what we call insight is a spectrum. It's a spectrum of things. It's from fairly mundane. Um, insights or ordinary insights into the nature of the working of our minds. Perhaps insight, you know, the initial insight I think anybody gets who sits on a cushion for the first time is actually my mind's a a chaotic mess. (laughs) That's probably the first insight you get. After that it starts to sort itself out a bit and you begin to perceive within the chaos there there are certain patterns that are going on within the mind. So there's that kind of insight into the nature of the workings of our mind. Actually, what Akinchina was talking about last night, actually insight into the workings of how much our experience is dominated, for example, by the five hindrances. That in itself is an insight. Now, the Buddha spoke, let me just say this, because, I mean, the, the actual, the real insight that the Buddha actually spoke about is not just these kinds of insights, which I, I put on the spectrum but not actually, what can we learn from those kinds of insights which he's really trying to get at? And the first thing is really, the first major, major example of what the Buddha is really trying to teach in regard to insight is that all of these reveal something to us. All of it, no matter what the insight is, no matter how mundane it is, it all reveals something to us. And the first thing it starts to reveal, and this is easy to say, it's very easy to me for us to sit here and say this, it's much, much more difficult as for us to actually see it on the cushion repeatedly and to then actually live in accordance with it. And the first thing we see is impermanence. Yeah? That's the first thing that reveals itself. Um, we all know that whatever, whatever comes into the mind actually has a very short shelf life. It comes in and it goes. You know, actually, all, all those thoughts actually just have a label. It just says passing through. You know, it's, all, it's, it's all impermanent. The other thing that um, the Buddha is talking about as, as the major insight or the major aspect of insight is actually to see that dukkha is part of our experience. This word that's often translated as suffering, I tried to give a gloss out in the very first talk I gave, um, that is far more than that. It's actually far more. To see actually that, um, that so much of our experience is dukkha. And particularly if we try to, for example, stabilize things and thought, then it becomes dukkha, because actually what we're trying to do is stabilize impermanence, where we can't actually do that. The other is a little bit more difficult to grasp. It's, I, I wouldn't want to get into detail about it in this evening, because we have such a short period of time, which is actually things lack any attachment to any notion of a fixed self. So much so that the Buddha repeatedly uses a phrase similar to this throughout the text, which is every time we perceive a thought process, what is arising in the mind, this is not I, this is not me, and this is not mine. In a way, that's beginning to see through the ideas, for example, that the thought processes are actually us uh, that are arising. 
um, when we sit. Repeatedly beginning to see this in relationship to whatever the um, more mundane insights are is what the Buddha talks about as the major insight into the three characteristics of existence that we have. Um, that actually characterize all of our processes. Now I'm going to pass over because I, I think that is a kind of starting place for a further investigation in this. But that really is the, if you like, that is what Vipassana is aimed at, that big insight. Impermanence, dukkha, not self. Insight sounds like a very big word. We're expecting headlines, bells and smells, <laughs> announcements. Insight is often a very quiet deepening of understanding. It's a movement from confusion to seeing clearly. It's a movement from living a life of unconsciousness to a life of being conscious, of being mindful of what is going on. So it's very important to remember, what is the purpose of insight? The purpose of insight is actually to bring about the end of distress, struggle, torment, confusion, delusion, not knowing. It's very clear to us in our lives that the places we suffer most are the places we're most unconscious, the places we're most held by habit patterns, particularly psychological, emotional habit patterns. So the whole practice is dedicated in terms of understanding how to move from these places of unconsciousness, where there's a lot of torment and struggle, to a place of mindfulness and understanding, which is dedicated really to the third noble truth, the end of dukkha. You know, big headlines, awakening, you know. There's different, this is a, proce a process and it is a path, you know, and, you know, as John rightly said, you know, I think the, you know, the primary sort of insights often spoken about, certainly if you look at the text, are around the three characteristics, around anicca, dukkha, anatta, anatta, non-self. But there has to be a process, you know, when you come on a retreat and you sit on a cushion, what do you meet? not so immediately apparent in each dukkha anatta. What you meet is your story. You know, what you meet is yourself. And I think it would be a great pity to sort of hold, you know, too many lofty ideals that somehow we bypass ourselves on the way to awakening. So many of the first insights are the places where we get ourselves into trouble on a personal level and within our personal narrative and view of self, you know, so we start to see our own patterns of confusion. Uh, you know, it's the world of personal insight. Where do I get into trouble? How does that happen? How do I get out of it? You know, where is there clinging to views of self? You know, where is the whole movement of, you know, resistance or anger or craving, you know? We're sitting with our own mind-body experience, and this is our classroom. This is what the Satipatthana Sutta points out to. Rather than you know, transcending this personal experience, we're asked to turn towards it because this is our classroom. So I would, you know, to try and bypass... I've seen many people try and bypass themselves on the way to enlightenment, and they just make more trouble for themselves. 
in within our personal story, our personal narrative, our personal views, there's a lot of lessons that are learned that I would call insights. Lessons of around acceptance, around kindness, around compassion, around tolerance, around you know, non-judgment, around patience. Many of these lessons that are pretty profound are actually learned within the realm of our personal story rather than in somewhere else. Those lessons that are learned allow the calming of our personal story. Those insights that are learned within this mind-body experience allow the calming of the agitation, you know, the calming, the clearing of the confusion, the, the befriending that we've talked about of what is going on you know, rather than feeling it just gets in the way of enlightenment, so to speak, you know. We learn to befriend, and that calms the narrative. You can begin to see that happen really in quite a short time in a retreat, you know, that the narrative first seems to spike. That's normal, you know. First, the narrative seems to get much more intense because we're not so distracted from it. That's normal. But that spiking is a kind of process of revealing itself. And that's where we learn many of those lessons that I would call pretty primary insights. Now, with the calming of the narrative, there is a movement more into just being able to hold this personal story within what I would call the more universal story, which is impermanence, you know, which is dukkha which is non-self. So it's almost this universal domain of insight is brought to bear upon this quite personal domain of insight, which is all in the service of bringing suffering, torment, confusion to an end. But as John very rightly says, insight has implications. You know, again, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, like impermanence, where we all nod very sagely and then, uh, you know, proceed on with our clinging ways. <laughs> you know, what is the implication of impermanence? Everything has written on it, non-clinging, let go. You know, what is the implications of impermanence is to hold the world with more grace and more softness rather than to create positions of, of defensiveness against life as it is. You know, what are the implications of dukkha? Well, this is really big. You know, the first ennobling truth, there is dukkha in life. Isn't it easy to go through life as if somehow we should be exempt? You know, other people have the first noble truth, not me, you know. In my life, things shouldn't change, you know. In my life, there shouldn't be loss, there shouldn't be pain, there shouldn't be aging, there shouldn't be sickness. You know, it's a huge insight to actually really see the first ennobling truth, which is where we all begin, actually applies to us and to live in that way. That's what allows us to look at the second ennobling truth, you know. What is the causes of distress? Well, a lot of the causes of distress are trying to deny the first noble truth. This is true. Hmm? It's, it's like I think Freud once said, you know, it's, you know, 25% of suffering in this life is unavoidable and the other 75% is born of trying to avoid the unavoidable. We can live in that way. So, you know, there are implications to insight, which is why, in my understanding, it is so important that we don't just think in terms of practice. 
that we think in terms of path. And the Buddha talked about path. He didn't just talk about formal sitting and walking. He talked about how we live. Because this is where we translate what we actually see in an ever-deepening way into the fabric of our lives. Now, we're quite right. Sometimes, you know, we do see something clearly. And it's very good to mark this. It doesn't matter what kind of insight or understanding it is, whether it's about a personal pattern, whether it's about change. It's actually very important to mark this, to know this. Ah, this is what I'm seeing. It doesn't necessarily then helpful to go into, to add a big narrative to it, as you say, you know, why is there greed? You know, why is there fear? Where does this come from? Oh, I know there, you know. We don't need to do an archaeological dig. It's enough just to see it in this moment. Ah, but to actually mark it, you know, because it's a great tendency. I often find in, in, in interviews, for example, you know, what I'm helping people to do or trying to help people to do is actually to articulate their own insights because they are seeing things, you know. And it's just a question of needing to articulate them, to put them into a kind of way of knowing. But that doesn't necessarily then invite our usual processes, which is to try and explain what we're seeing. So to mark it, to let it be, just to be with what is, to let that continue to unfold in its own natural rhythm rather than somehow taking charge of it through thought. Basically, what I understand, you want to hear demographic facts, isn't it? Yeah? So, would, you, would you practice any different if there were awakened people? Well, actually, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're just curious. I believe there is a strategy to your question. Yeah. Um, 
In fact, I, I hear almost an appeal to tell you, no, we're just, this is just a sales pitch we're peddling. <laughs> Uh, you know, everybody's just normal as you feel you are, uh, um, and to basically validate you in what you presumably uh, surmise to be a non-awakened state. Yeah. Um, now, I don't think this is a good, good question, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, have no, I have no doubt in my mind that people have woken up. I have no doubt in my mind that there are stages of, say, disendarkenment that, <laughs> that, that can be quite verifiably experienced in one's own life. Uh, some of it I have glimpsed myself. Um, I, have had, I feel I have had the privilege to be in the presence of people who I deem to have progressed further along the path. And I have no doubt that there is a possibility for the third noble truth to occur, namely, you know, that suffering can end. Not in, you know, Buddha Amitabha's Western paradise, not after death, but in this life. Yeah. And that hinges to some degree on instruction, it hinges on application, it hinges on uh, things you already bring along, and it particularly hinges on your willingness to learn. Yeah. That means you have to suffer more elegantly yeah? <laughs> uh, and be willing to do that and be willing to turn towards that which in your life feels not perfect and feels painful. And meeting the pain and meeting that which tells us uh, <laughs> limitation or unsatisfactoriness or that which speaks of loss, that which speaks of our uh, investment in things that do not last, meeting that experience wholeheartedly and with the greatest amount of inquiry and patience and willingness to bear, that is what transforms suffering and brings about awakening. Yeah. Now, you'll see that some people find meditation is basically a form of improvement. Yeah, It's kind of a Sangsara management, you know, I basically go along with the fundamental premise, things are, you know, things are kind of dukkha infested here, but what I'm aiming at is a sort of a 75% application, so, and then I get it to a manageable level, and then I kind of go into cruise control and just take it from there, you know, minimize my input, my effort, and from then on kind of sail on, you know. Um, other people kind of come in and just want to get straightened out in one aspect of their life. Yeah. I got into this because I just wanted to be more clever. Yeah. I, had, I realized uh, I had a software problem. I realized I was reasonably privileged, middle-class kid. It was early 80s, yeah? and I realized I suffered much too much for what I had justification for suffering in my life. Yeah? And I realized I had a problem somewhere in my software. Out of my conditions, I got out too many degrees of suffering. So I wanted to optimize that a bit. And in fact, <laughs> I'm still at this project. <laughs> it has taken a little longer than I anticipated. <laughs> but uh, 
my intuition then, I would want to honor my intuition from then, namely that this is helpful, yeah? that this takes me um, you know, on unexpected detours, obviously, but it, the basic premise is there is much more suffering created by the mind than I have experienced by, my, by the conditions of my life. And I'm interested in minimizing that, that unnecessary type of suffering. Yeah. You still get old, you still will die, you, will, you may lose people precious to you along that way, and a few unpleasant things may happen in your life, but um, you can create a hell of a lot more suffering out of this than is necessary. Yeah. Pain is unavoidable, suffering is mandatory to a large extent. It's, uh, it's, 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 uh, Optional, thank you. Yeah. Good. Personally, I feel it's, it's a great sadness in Western culture that we have often taken a pathway where we feel so disenchanted or cynical even about human possibility. And, you know, we, we are prone to actually, you know, we see where people fail rather than where they excel. Um, if you, my early years of practice were in Asia where the very real possibility of awakening was entertained by everybody who practiced, not just by a few. It was normal. That's why you did this wasn't any other reason. I mean, you know, if you somebody brought to one of my teachers some other reason for practicing, they would have looked in astonishment because there is actually the very firm conviction that this path only has one direction, which is awakening. Now, that is a very that path is a process, you know, many moments, many moments of awakening, many moments of liberating suffering. The Buddha very much spoke about path and fruition, where we actually practice to liberate the moment. That's what this practice is for. We practice to liberate the moment from confusion, from suffering, and with sufficient deepening, that practice has a fruition, which is an unshakable awakening. In Asia, you know, it's quite normal, you know, you turn up in a monastery and, you know, you ask, you know, or in a village, you ask any stream entries here, which is one of the ways of describing first stage of awakening, the falling away of identity, the falling away of doubt, the falling away of attachment, fruition of confidence, deep understanding of non-self. Non-clinging, you go into a village or a monastery, you say, any, any stream enters here? Oh, they'd say, yeah, three down the road, you just go around the corner, you know, you'll find them at, you know, 42 Victoria Drive, you know, they're there, they're, you know, go to the village, you know, any kind of, you know, sakyagamis, oh, yeah, they didn't want down there, you know. It's normal language. It's normal language. It's not some sort of, you know, ethereal, you know, they're talking about living people who have actually known how to relinquish these causes of suffering. 
this is something that doesn't exist so strongly in Western practice. Or often in Western practice, we have much more idealized, romanticized notions of liberation. You know, that people should walk around with halos or, you know, um, you know, never make a mistake. I suspect the Buddha had a bit of stuff. He seemed to have a bit of stuff to me when I made the discourse. <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> certainly, <clears throat> all right, sorry. And then, then, <laughs> he had one or two things around women, you know, and, you know, one or two little things like that. But, you know, anyway, we'll get past that. But at the same time, he... He, no doubt, had an extraordinary heart and mind. The depth of this person's understanding, you know, 2,600 years ago, that could actually see what he saw through looking at his own mind and heart, to me is, is absolutely astounding, is absolutely astonishing. And, you know, the Buddha said very clearly, and I really totally subscribe to this, if I did not have the confidence that you could do this, I would not ask it of you. But because I have the confidence that you can do this, that is why I ask it of you. And I think that's something really to take to heart. You know, I don't think you should ever put forward that, that theory that I will not be awakened in this life. You do not know. You do not know how your understanding will develop. You do not know the seeds you're planting and how they will flower. You know, you, you cannot know that. All you can know is your own sincerity, your own dedication, your own commitment, and your own willingness to develop the understanding that liberates the moment. We can't think about what might happen in 10 years, 20 years, but we surely do see, if that sincerity and willingness and commitment is there, we surely see this path deepen and develop. You know, we see things fall away, we see fruitions, and we actually know we're on a path that has one direction, and that direction is the Third Noble Truth. to say much more because I think we ought to leave some room for other questions but I, I think this is such an important question in a sense, although expressed with a slight degree of scepticism here <laughs> um, but I do think it's such an important question because <clears throat> it comes back to something I was saying on the very first evening which is in a sense what's your motivation, why are you practicing what's it about, why, why are you engaging in this, is it as Akinshino says, is it sangsara management, is it you just want a little bit better sangsara um, or is it, as this path has, you know, for its two and a half thousand years has been, which has been the path to waking up, in a sense, living realistically, that's what it is, with healthy mental attitudes, um, developing what I would see as the real meaning of being a human being standing on this planet, with all of its possibility, all, everything, you and I, Every one of us has such a possibility um, to develop the very ultimate, what I call, um, wholesome dimensions of our experience. We all have that possibility to be able to do that. To develop, for example, the, um, the real flowering of friendliness, the real flowering of compassion in our lives, 
the real flowering of contact with others and being with others in those ways, you know, through the Brahma Viharas, but many, many other ways as well. The real flowering of generosity, the real flowering of um, understanding, an understanding that really lives in this world in a, in a very realistic sense. You know, and when we talked about those three characteristics of existence, I mean, that is the realism of things, that things are impermanent, they are you know, they are dukkha, but we don't have to add to that dukkha. Um, and they also are not self. Now, in that possibility, in, in that, um, what I consider to be an extremely honourable goal, yeah, it's like saying, well, I've got this potentiality, am I going to squander it, or am I going to harness it, and am I going to really literally give it my best shot in this life? Now, what I hear also is it's not just awakening or awakened, it's waking up. And so it's a process. Um, and actually, I think the journey is the interesting part, the interesting dimension of this in the process of waking up. You know, we wake up to little things, it's almost going back to the question of insight, we wake up to little things, and then we wake up to larger things. And it's like we develop a skill of being awake to the way things are in life. And we can hone that skill, and we can consolidate that skill, and we can really, in a sense, um, move towards what this figure here represents, which is somebody literally who's just done this rather um, remarkable thing in life. Now, I think it's a real possibility, not just theoretically, but I think because I've encountered people who are on that path, who are really, really dedicated to that path. Um, whose lives have changed considerably. In very small ways, I've seen my own life over my years of practice change out of all recognition to the ways that it was before. And if I don't gain awakening, yeah, in, the, in the big sense of the word, the big awakened bit, well, perhaps when I leave this earth, you know, I don't leave a huge wake of devastation behind me. <laughs> yeah that I've actually minimized that. I've minimized, in a sense, the damage that I've done in this life by trying to live this way. So I think this is a, what I call a very honorable thing to be involved in, and I think it's um, something we can dedicate ourselves to, this task of waking up. You know? The question is, 
is the, the place of the personal experience and the confidence, I think, you're saying that grows through that personal experience to actually really bring the teaching into one's personal experience and to see whether it is true. I mean, this is a basis, I think, of this whole teaching. If you look at that very primary, one of the primary discourses of the Buddha where, um, you know, he says, don't accept something because it has a huge, long history, because many authorities say it's so, or because it's written in books, or, you know, everybody agrees it must be so. You know, look into, apply it to your own experience. See, does this lead to the end of suffering? Only then follow this path, if it is true in your own experience. Now, passing out the... I think one of the admirable things about this teaching is that it invites being put under the microscope. You know, unpack it, question it, scrutinize it, you know, pull it apart every which way. You know, it invites that. It never, ever promotes belief systems, but invites that, that scrutiny, that investigation as a very base for taking up this path or taking up this practice. Um, you know, and the only microscope that actually really probably ever convinces us in our lives is actually the microscope of our direct experience, you know, our life. Uh, much is, uh, of Buddhist teaching as we, as we know it is, is couched in a language of universal truths, universal principles, universal patterns, suffering, impersonality, conditionality. And yet it is a teaching also that keeps encouraging not just to know impermanence but to reconcile with that characteristic of experience. And that reconciliation part, that for me is part of an insight, by the way. Uh, it's one thing, we all know that things change, and yet, you know, we can be remarkably unenlightened uh, all the while knowing that things change. So that reconciliation part of practice is something that has to be done personally. It has to be done within the specificity of one's own life, within the conditions of one's own uh, surroundings and one's own relationship. And it basically means that we have to hold a universal truth, a universal possibility, as John just pointed out, and to make that possible from a personal point of view. Yeah? We have to take that into the particularity of our own lives and make that real in there. Yeah. Otherwise it just stays a statement about the universe which I can either believe or disbelieve but basically my life does not partake of this unless I am willing to translate that right down into the however personalized experience I find myself in and keep reconciling the apparently personal story with a universal embedded uh, envelope, if you want to say so. 
So in my books, you know, one of the stages of meditation practice is that I have to look into the personal dimension of my suffering. That's where Buddhism isn't really good at. Yeah? It's language. It's written, textual language speaks of universal dimensions of suffering. It does that very excellent. It does that very clearly. It doesn't so much speak of the personal dimension of suffering. That has been generally the job of the oral tradition. Yeah? That's the bit which we don't find in the text. And translating one's own personal narrative, one's own personal story, and reconciling that personal story with the universal message is, is practice. That can only happen through personal commitment, personal inquiry, personal application. Yeah? It's the dimension that the scriptural teachings would call pativeda, the actual doing and realizing of it. Nobody can do that for us. No amount of belief, no amount of loyalty to tradition or lineage, as Christina just pointed out, no amount of faith, in fact, can do that for us. It has to do with our willingness to, to sweat yeah? and to bear and to apply and to explore and to probe and to not be uh, discouraged by uh, if we don't meet with immediate success. Yeah? In the ideal world, basically, you know, understanding the function of mind and understanding the nature of your heart. Um, if, if this was proper science, you know, you would have a, a clean, nicely lit laboratory, you would have a wonderful workbench, you would have neatly sorted tools, and then you would have an exquisite introspective tool by which you would do your experiments. Yeah. But this is Buddhism. It's all messy, you know. It's kind of the mind that tries to understand its own function is also the organ. It's also the instrument by which you try to understand it, yeah. So it's you clamber down a rickety stair in a dimly lit workshop. Everything is in disorder, yeah. <clears throat> and you're fumbling around in the half dark, groping to understand parts of which you don't know where they belong with tools that you can't find and with, you know, it's not, it's, it's not optimal the way. And this kind of work can only be done by people who are willing to receive, you know, experience setbacks and who are uh, willing to um, learn on the, on the hoof, basically, you know, are prepared to change approaches. And, and this takes com considerable personal uh, commitment, application, willingness to be humiliated along the way having one's narcissism uh, slighted, you know. And that generally is not an easy thing to do. And it can only be done by somebody who is humble enough, curious enough, dedicated enough, confident enough, and maybe suffering enough to actually do that. Okay, just to say a couple of things, not very much, um, before we finish. Uh, I think we'll finish here. The one thing that always strikes me about <clears throat> the Buddha's teaching in the earliest of texts, I'm not talking about the way it develops, is the Buddha is very much teaching a practical skill. Um, the 
even the terseness of the sort of material, the complexity of the sort of material, it's all about beginning to look, for example, at processes, um, beginning to work with the processes which are ours. If it's taken as a belief system, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't, um, it just doesn't hold together. I often used to introduce to my students at the university when I was teaching Buddhist studies that um, basically the Buddha is the first psychologist. Yeah? And he's also one of the first ethicists. Yeah? We tend to forget that big part, that dimension of it. So it wasn't just about human psychology. Also, It was about how human psychology actually was expressed in terms of action. And the two went very closely together. And so it was deeply looking into the psychological conditions and processes and see how they worked out in terms of the way that people behaved. Now, the Buddha himself did this in a very empirical way. Okay, not quite in a scientific empirical way, in the sense of an objective sense of it, but it's a very subjective um, psychological investigation and investigation into forms of behavior. Now, what was so remarkable about him, I think, as a teacher, was that he expected people to do the same thing. Yeah. He didn't just say, well, believe what I say. He actually encouraged us to engage in this deep investigation ourselves and to valorize it and to validate it in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of our own experience, not as a belief system. Uh, it's very interesting that you know, the word that usually gets translated as faith in, um, you know, in, in the texts actually doesn't really mean that. It's this word sadar, which really means in a sense of confidence or trust in it. And that's just how we learn. We have to base our confidence and trust on something we understand, something we begin to see already in our lives. And I think that's what's so unique about the Buddha in that he makes a starting point, something we can look at very closely and stand very closely to immediately which is, actually, it's not a proposition, is it, Dukkha? Yeah. It's not something, uh, I don't become suddenly a believer in Dukkha. <laughs> you, know, you know, either it's there in your experience or it isn't. Either you recognize it in the terms of um, what is occurring in your life or it's not there for you, or you don't recognize it. So he makes the starting place something extremely empirical. And the rest really, despite all of what um, McKinchin is saying about the, the difficulties and the, you know, in a sense, the, the rickety nature of this experiment that you're engaging in, and the kind of tools we have available, is a very, very practical investigation. That certainly is what's always inspired me to practice this path, is that it doesn't require me to have a whole set of beliefs um, what it does require me to do is to actually want to stand close to my experience and really understand it and actually behave uh, in accordance with what I begin to understand as much as I can in this, what I call unfolding vision because it becomes an unfolding vision of how we are in this world, how we can be and how we are at this moment in time. So I think it's a very, very practical investigation that we do when we begin to stand close to experience. Okay, well, I think we'll bring things to a close here. And let's just sit for a couple of minutes. Do you want to ring the bell?
Thank you. So we have time now for a walking period before the last sitting of the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.